Today on Blue 58, training camp is underway and already interesting storylines are beginning to emerge. But the pads have barely been on and we haven't even seen a preseason game yet. So how do we decide what stories are worth following and what is just summertime fluff? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. Training camp's about a week old. Exactly a week old, if you are listening to this on a Wednesday. And uh, there's a lot going on already. Six practices down for the Packers as of this recording, and a few storylines I think we need to catch up on. First and foremost, Elton Jenkins holding down the fort at left tackle. There is some talk about switching things around now that Dennis Kelly is in the house, maybe moving uh, Billy Turner over to left tackle and bumping Jenkins inside. But as long as things keep going well, I would be more inclined to move Turner inside to guard, either on the left or on the right, whatever works out, and just keep Jenkins out there. You're starting to set up the offensive line. He's establishing himself at left tackle. He's worked there all offseason. Why not just let it ride and see what happens? He's your most athletic offensive lineman. He's your most versatile guy. Sure, he may be a little bit shorter and stockier than some of the other guys, but in the grand scheme, how big a deal is that? For a few weeks, if he's got to run the show there at the left side, on the left side, I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. I think just leave him there and get it sorted out. And then when David Bakhtiari comes back, then you move him inside and you've got a really strong offensive line left to right. Josh Myers also seems to have locked up the starting center job right away. If you've been listening to us for a while, that's something we predicted basically from day one. Put him there, leave him there. Don't worry about it. He's a second round pick. He should be capable of starting as a rookie. And it looks like that's what the Packers are going to do. I'm very glad to see that. Elsewhere in the draft, Eric Stokes appear to be ha- appears to be having an up-and-down start. This does not worry me at all. This, I think, is par for the course for a cornerback taken in the latter portions of the first round. Sure, he's got physical talent, and it's going to show at times. Other times, it's going to look a little bit rough. Fortunately, the Packers don't need to be need to have him be locked in from day one. He can come along a little bit slowly since he's got an all-world corner on the other side in Jair Alexander. Uh, It does make him a little bit more of a target if he does play uneven at the start. But, hey, it's repetitions and practice time is just going to make this better and better for him. So take your lumps now, and maybe by midseason, you're a lot farther along than you would have been had he not gotten this experience early. Kevin King's injuries... I guess, helping the Packers in a weird kind of way right now. Also uneven, Jordan Love. Uh, This does bother me a little bit more. In his second year, after an offseason where he got all of the reps top to bottom, we shouldn't be hearing week in or day in and day out that he is uneven, inconsistent. One throw looks great. One throw, not so great. The physical talent has never been the issue for Jordan Love. The The questions have always been about decision-making, accuracy, and consistency. And if he can't make good decisions, if he can't be consistent and he can't be accurate, it's not going to matter how many weapons they put around him or, or what kind of support they get him if and when they do move on and make him the starting quarterback. That's going to sink the ship. If you cannot be consistent, if you cannot make good decisions, if you cannot be accurate... Right now, Jordan Love is, well, he's pretty much failing to show all of those things. He, he he just hasn't done it so far. Really interested to see what things look like for him 
in a real game, well, real air quotes, in a, a simulated game, a exhibition, preseason game, whatever, uh, because we'll get a much better idea of what we're seeing outside of a practice situation. I think he's got to at least be good as Brett Hundley was in 2015, his his best preseason effort. If he's not, there are going to be real concerns about what Jordan Love is bringing to the Packers if there aren't already. Next up, Patrick Taylor is off the physically unable to perform list. This is good news as a Patrick Taylor fan now for a while. Uh, I think uh, the more the merrier in terms of position competition and uh, adding him into the mix with Kylan Hill for that number three spot and Dexter Williams as well just makes the whole group that much better and uh, gives you more options to choose from. So that is uh, good to see. Back on the defensive side of the ball, uh, Kamal Martin is in the midst of a position change. Uh, A day after it was reported or speculated at training camp that he was maybe shuffling down the depth chart a little bit, he seems to be changing positions altogether, moving to outside linebacker um, in Joe Barry's scheme. A couple questions about that. First, is it that uh, they just have other guys they like better? Or is Kamal Martin genuinely struggling? Because one of those you can work with, one of those you're starting to hit the panic button a little bit. If he if he legitimately can't do it in the middle, you have to do things like change positions. Secondly, when they say outside linebacker, do they mean off the ball outside linebacker? Or do they mean a true edge rusher? If they're switching him over to edge, which doesn't seem super likely, how's he going to fit there? It doesn't seem like he has the body type to really make that that position work. If it's an off-the-ball outside linebacker, what kind of roles are there really for him there? Because if you look at the scheme Joe Barry is probably going to run, again, conjecture because we really don't know what we're supposed to see from him because he doesn't really give us a straight answer, it's going to be probably two or three down linemen, two edge rushers, and an inside linebacker off the ball, and five defensive backs behind that. A five-man front, a linebacker, and uh, five defensive backs behind that. That's your base. Where does an outside linebacker fit into that group? Anybody's guess, and uh, we'll just have to wait and see, but this does not seem to be a good sign for him. On the bummer news front, Simon Stepanak appears to be hanging it up, uh, retiring here in his second year, uh, and the word from Bill Huber at Sports Illustrated or Fan Nation or whatever they're calling that division of their digital media now says it's a, a mental health thing, not a physical health thing. And we're not going to hear from Simon himself, so we don't know exactly what that means. But just from the outside looking in, I would say there's probably a fair bit of strain and stress that comes with trying to make it back from an ACL injury late in your final year of college football and just not being able to quite get all the way back. So just in the interest of saying, I'm not going to stress myself out by trying to make something happen that is probably not going to happen, just hang it up. That's how I would feel, I suppose, if I was in that situation. And obviously not trying to speak for him, but uh, it's totally understandable if that's the circumstance. And uh, a real bummer because you, you liked a lot of the things that you could see from him in, in his pedigree. He probably would have been a mid-round pick had it not been for the injury. And that's just a real shame that it ends this way for him. But uh, kudos to him for going out on his own terms instead of sticking around doing something that you don't feel great about only to have someone else make that decision for you. Got to gotta praise him for that. Daniel Crawford comes to the roster uh, today, uh, a new tight end out of Northern Illinois. He comes after a re- another retirement in camp wide receiver Bailey Gaither calling it quits. 
uh, evidently seeing the writing on the wall at the wide receiver position, uh, just, uh, he, he too decides to go out on his own terms. Uh, Crawford, a smallish tight end. I don't know how you can really say that about a guy that's 251 pounds, but 6'2", 250 in the 240s, a couple other spots I saw, uh, played a traditional tight end role at Northern Illinois, reasonably productive there. Averaged almost 11 yards per catch over his final two years there, according to Paul Brettel. Uh, and he has a relative athletic score of about 6.81 with one caveat. That 6.81 comes if you switch him to fullback as a tight end because he's a little on the smaller side. It bumps it down significantly. What does that tell us? He's probably going to be another Dominique Daphne H-back type player. And that is uh, what we've come to expect from Matt LaFleur and his offense. He likes those more sawed-off tight ends, the traditional Mercedes Lewis Y tight end that all the film junkies like to refer to is kind of a thing of the past in the NFL. you got to be able to run fast or block like a fullback and catch now and then. That is the modern non-traditional tight end. So if you're not going to be Robert Tunyon running down the field making plays, you're going to be uh, Josiah DeGora or Dominique Daphne or I guess... Uh, Daniel Crawford. You're getting a shot. Uh, I think he's probably lashed in line right now, but uh, you never know what can happen. Dominique Daphne was kind of in a similar situation not all that long ago and ended up having a pretty nice season in 2020. Randy Ramsey appears to be down for quite some time uh, with an injury of some sort. Uh, it's unclear what that injury is, but it appears to be serious. It appears to be a knee injury of some kind. And I mentioned this for a couple of reasons. First, uh, because it's just a bummer to see stuff like this happen in training camp. But second, because of how it affects the edge depth chart. The Packers are pretty thin at edge rusher as it stands right now. You've got Zedarius Smith and Rashawn Gary, who are, you know, solidly one and two. Preston Smith, who I think fairly can be characterized as a question mark this year, even if he is showing up in better shape and vowing to be a better player than he was last year. That's all well and good, but we got to see it first. And then beyond those three, it's a bunch of question marks. You had Ramsey, you had Jonathan Garvin, and then you had a lot of question marks beyond that. So we'll wait and see what the prognosis is for Ramsey, but if he is out any amount of time, I want to do a little bit of shopping and see if you can find somebody with a little bit of athletic upside to at least slot into that role and maybe soak up some special team snaps like Ramsey did. Finally, the wide receiver number six battle seems to be, as expected, shaping up to be a fight between Equinemia St. Brown, Juwan Winfrey, and Malik Taylor. Winfrey, the clubhouse favorite, at least it looks like right now, but Equinemia St. Brown at least reportedly making a push here. And uh, Malik Taylor, of course, hanging around as the, I guess, de facto incumbent here, the guy who was actually on the active roster last year and played the most out of all three of these guys. But this leads me into the next segment that I want to talk about on the show today. How do we know what's real and what's not real? Uh, Chiming in from the Discord Discord server, Reisei Pei Bei, one of uh, the regular commenters there in that space, and you should check that out if you're a Patreon user. And if you're not, head to patreon.com slash thepowersweep and become one. You'll have access to that Discord server as well. But anyway, Abordi writes, how much stock do you put in training camp performances? I've seen uh, discussion about Equinemia St. Brown having an amazing camp with incredible catches being the norm. This feels familiar to previous off-seasons with said player. Just curious about your personal feelings on someone shining in camp and how much it makes you pay attention, especially pre-pads. This is a good question because it, it kind of gets to the the root of all we've talked about in the podcast so far today. 
How do you decide what's real and what's not real? Well, this is worth sorting through because on the one hand, nothing in training camp is real, especially before the pads go on. We know that the roster is largely set already. The guy making a big run in camp and coming out of nowhere and making the team is kind of a myth. It really doesn't happen as much as I think we're led to believe. As we've pointed out for a few years now, you sit down after the draft and you can basically nail down 46 or 47 of the 53 roster spots. There really isn't that much competition on an NFL roster in training camp. You just need enough guys around to uh, to run practice, have guys to practice against, and make sure you're developing all levels of your roster instead of just your starters like you do in season. We also know that you can't really tell anything from shirts and shorts. Why is that? Because nobody plays football without pads on, obviously. We also know that unless we're there, there's only so much we can glean from information we get from reporters. Packers Beat does a great job. All the amateur reporters who are there in the stands and uh, hustling as hard as they can to get what information they can um, without being in press conferences and things like that is great. But there's hearing it and reading it, and then there's seeing it for yourself. And we haven't gotten to see anything yet because preseason hasn't started. So some reasons to be skeptical about what we're seeing and hearing in camp so far. But on the other hand, all of this counts for something. Some of it doesn't count for much, but all of it does count for something. The coaches are trying guys out at stuff. They're working on positioning within the depth chart. You have injuries from time to time, sad as that may be. Randy Ramsey, an example. That's going to affect the depth chart and who else gets opportunities. It all matters. Some of it matters a lot. Some of it doesn't matter all that much, but it all matters to a certain extent. So how do you sort through what matters? Three things. First, I think you want to look for patterns and trends in reporting. Does player X struggle on one day or is it a repeated thing? Does it come up again and again and again in reporting? And is that reporting being confirmed by other people that's going on or that are at camp? Or or are you getting split decisions and uh, you know, kind of conflicting reporting on some things. Does a guy have a string of really good practices, uh, bearing in mind who he's competing against and the opportunities he's getting in camp? That's worth bearing in mind. Look for those patterns and trends. Who's coming up again and again and again as, as doing well or doing poorly? Next, look for who gets in first. This is the surest sign that coaches want to make sure they get a quality look at somebody. They get them in there right away. They're either running with the ones or they're first off the bench in a preseason game. Guys that get the most snaps are not necessarily the ones that the coaches are are really trying to get a look at. Uh, it may be that they're just soaking up snaps because you need somebody out there to um, to take snaps. We're going to talk about the 2012 preseason actually for, for a second when we talk about um, uh, the latest chapter of Blood, Sweat, and Chalk. But I, I use this example from time to time because it's a great example of this phenomenon. Guys that play the most in the preseason are not necessarily guys who are going to make the roster. There's a guy back in 2012 who took the bulk of the carries for the Packers in the preseason at running back. His name was Mark Tyler out of USC. And it was abundantly clear from the first series that he was on the field that he was out of his depth. He was a productive player at USC, but he did not have the speed to make it happen in the NFL. But guess what? Uh, The Packers had nobody else to carry the ball. Alex Green was hurt. James Starks was hurt. I think uh, Ryan Grant had moved on at that point. Cedric Benson was not up to speed in camp yet. They had preseason games to play, and somebody had to play running back. And so it was Mark Tyler out of USC running the ball and averaging something like 2.6 yards per carry. 
and it was not pretty. It was very clear that he was just there because they needed somebody to soak up those snaps. That happens more than I think we realize a lot of times in the preseason. It's not always the guys who get a lot of snaps. It's the guys who get strategic kinds of snaps in the preseason that you want to look at. So we'll try to call that out when we get to preseason game territory. Uh, a good way of identifying which snaps are are important is by looking at special teams, the third and final point I want to make here. We're already talking about fringe guys for most of this. Like I said, you can nail down 46, 47, 48 roster spots right after the draft. Beyond that, it's your bottom five guys on the roster. Fringe guys, deep backups, offensive linemen who are mainly going to be playing special teams, uh, your sixth wide receiver, as we've talked about earlier, who's going to be that punt gunner or you know covering kicks, uh, maybe returning kicks, something like that. Most of these guys are pretty fringe players, and this is often often the difference maker. So pay attention to who's playing on special teams, and you'll be able to do a much better job of sorting through this real, not real sort of stuff uh, in training camp. Again, all of this stuff does matter to a certain extent, but deciding how much and what really matters is the hard part. So ignore some of the stuff, but don't discount it completely. Maybe just keep it in the back of your mind. Uh, pile up a, a bunch of anecdotes and try to sort out, you know, sort through them uh, when you start making your roster predictions toward the end of training camp, and then you might have something once you get there. All right, Blue 58 Book Club. We are into the back half of Blood, Sweat, and Chalk, and we're getting to some thoroughly modern stuff here, the spread offense. Or as we just talk overall impressions of this chapter, maybe not some more modern stuff. This chapter is a great example of how many new things, air quotes around new, are actually pretty old, at least as far as football is concerned. The spread offense, for instance, this originated with Dutch Meyer in the 1950s, and they talk about his book, Spread Formation Football. It is still an influential textbook today, though it is out of print and very difficult to track down. Uh, if you are willing, for $900, you can get your own copy on Amazon today. For whatever reason, they did not want to keep printing uh, textbooks written by an outsider football coach, uh, coaching a weird offense back in a, an era where people still considered uh, forward passing, if not an outright sin, at least a little bit unconventional, something that maybe you did but didn't really talk about. The broader here, theory here, I think, in this chapter is more important, and this has been a recurring thing throughout a lot of chapters in this book, but the broader theory here is important, too. Uh, you want a scheme for players, the players you have, not just because you like the schemes. So every scheme and play that we talk about in this book has been mentioned so far because it's effective, it's worked. But not every scheme works for every player. And that's what came up again and again and again in this chapter. You're always going to have players on your football team. And those players might not want to fit or might not fit what you want to do, so make your scheme fit your players. How can you maximize the talents that you have? This is something we got on Mike McCarthy a lot for down the stretch during his time in his career in Green Bay. It never really seemed like he was terribly interested in changing his scheme to maximize the talents of the players they had. So in 2013, think back to that year. Randall Cobb's banged up a lot. Jordy Nelson's a little bit hurt. Uh, Devontae Adams not on the way to Green Bay yet. So you've got a lot of young, inexperienced players. Jarrett Boykin, Miles White. How do you make your nuclear-powered passing game work with your all-world quarterback and Aaron Rodgers? 
Well, ideally, you would figure out what those guys can do well and put them in positions to do those things well. But Mike McCarthy just kind of said, what if we did the exact same thing we did in 2011 when we scored a billion points, but, uh, you know, it with different players? Huh? How, how about that? Didn't, didn't really work out. And the Packers struggled on offense for a lot of that season. And then again in 2013, when Aaron Rodgers goes down with the collarbone injury, you can't run your, you know, what I just said, nuclear-powered offense without Aaron Rodgers pulling the trigger. But that didn't stop Mike McCarthy from trying to do that. Fit your schemes to your players. Don't just pick a scheme you like and try to run it with whoever you have. A couple interesting notes from this chapter, too. I love this description from Greg Davis because it kind of describes a lot of my experience with with writing and thinking about football. Uh, Layden writes, in his world, defenders are one-dimensional cutouts that only have fronts but no backs. They are just letters squeaked onto a whiteboard with a Sharpie. And Davis goes on to explain that, you know, he grew up as, as a quarterback, played quarterback in college. He's really only ever wanted to think about offense, so he's just going to try to think of ways to innovate on offense and say, hey, defense, you're going to have to react to me. A lot of guys, I think more and more in, um, in certain, certain schemes, approach football this way. They're not trying to pick on specific things that the defense is doing as much as saying, defense, here's what we're going to do. You try to keep up with us. And that was something that was always interesting to me, you know, in college football. We would have our our offensive team meetings, and uh, we'd spend the entire time going over what the opposing defense was trying to do. And we'd we'd spend so much time worrying about what the defense was going to do that we, I felt like a lot of times, lost out on practice time figuring out what we were going to do. And sometimes you could even see that on the field. We'd have errors with stuff we tried to install to counter a certain thing on the defense because we spent so much time worrying about the defense and not practicing what the offense was supposed to do. That always struck me as a little bit backwards. Aren't we the ones in charge here? Don't we have the ball? Aren't they supposed to respond to us? Why don't we come up with things that we do well rather than worrying about what they do well? And if we got to tailor those things based on what they do well, that's, uh, you know that's something you have to do. You have to address from time to time, but ultimately it's going to be about what we do well, and you have to get on our level, or you're going to get run over. Just want to mention too, uh, since it came up often in this book, Vince Young running in the open field was a thing of beauty. And talk about a marriage between scheme and player. Vince Young at Texas, just that perfect, perfect pairing of player and scheme. Not necessarily the most accurate player, but in a lot of spread stuff, you don't have to be accurate because you're making very simple reads and very simple throws. A lot of opportunities to run, and boy, could Vince Young run. And watching him run, you know, pulling up highlights today, prepping for this, uh, still gives me a lot of joy. You know, almost 15 years later, well, yeah, I guess 15 years later, looking at some of those highlights, uh, just arms and legs everywhere, uh, chest high, head thrown back, had a very unique running style, uh, but so much fun to watch. Uh, Mouse Davis comes up obviously a lot in this chapter. Uh, a perfect example of why we shouldn't call guys in, in, inventors of certain schemes or things, because he is quick to give credit to Tiger Ellison and people who game, came before him, even for his signature offense, the run and shoot. 
So maybe he was not so much the inventor of the run and shoot, but the popularizer, maybe the innovator, the guy who takes something that exists already and builds on it. Speaking of Tiger Ellison, did you happen to catch the theory of Tiger Ellison's run and shoot as described in this chapter? I'll quote it to you. Uh, Blocking schemes were identical for runs and passes so as to not tip off the defense, and Ellison made a a sincere effort to make every pass look like a run and every run look like a pass. Does that sound familiar? I think so. It sounds a lot like what we're seeing in Green Bay and uh, basically what what Matt LaFleur talks about. Uh, Tiger Ellison only had 40 plays in his playbook, 20 runs, 20 passes, Uh, but he made everything look the same and thus installed in his offense the illusion of complexity. The very last point in this book I thought was a good one, uh, and I'll quote it again directly. Football archaeologists understood that even when the run and shoot did not lead to big victory numbers, it always advanced the cause of innovative offense. And I sat with that for a while today, uh, because the goal obviously is to win. But if you can't win, what's the next best thing? Maybe just change the game, make it different than it was before you came. And I think about stuff like that a lot with the podcast uh, or, you know, a lot of things in life. Chances are most of us aren't going to invent the next big thing or even, you know, looking at Mouse Davis, innovate the next big thing, popularize something that's really popular. But what if we can change things and make it better for people who come after us, maybe working in a similar space, you know, uh, you know, coach up somebody who wants to start a podcast, help them if they want to start a blog or whatever your field happens to be. Advancing the cause of something you care about might be just as important, if not better, than being the absolute best in your field, reinvesting into something you care about. Because I think that's clear about all of these schemes, whether they led to, you know, changing the game uh, and, you know, winning national championships or Super Bowls or whatever, or just making it possible for the next guy to win big um, with something that you taught him. Maybe the second one isn't so bad. It'll just be the hardcore people, you know, like Tim Layden or, you know, people like us talking about you down the road in whatever field you happen to be saying stuff like, well, everybody uses the spread, but you got to remember that it was Mouse Davis and Tiger Ellison and, you know, all of those guys who really innovated to make that possible. You can be successful and be that kind of person too, even if you don't necessarily have the Super Bowl ring or the national championship to go with it. Finally, in terms of Packers connections, got to mention here both Cedric Benson and Vince Young. Both of them had brief stints with the Packers. Uh, Vince Young, I've written about fairly extensively at thepowersweep.com. Uh, Google that sometime if you haven't. It's it's a fun look into his his brief tenure with the Packers and how maybe that could have gone a little bit differently had things shaken out a little bit differently for him. But Cedric Benson also should get a mention here, in part because he is uh, he has passed away in in somewhat tragic circumstances, uh, an accident that led to led to his uh, untimely demise. But um, he did play a few year or a few games with the Packers in 2012, five games as a matter of fact, just 248 yards on 71 carries, so not spectacular numbers there, but helped stabilize the running back position early in the season before an injury ended his tenure with the Packers. Um, a bit too soon. But uh, fun trip down memory lane thinking about him. Even if he wasn't a great player, it was still exciting to have him in Green Bay for a time just because of of the stature of player he was at the college level. So cool to see him stop by and 
Uh, he's a little bit of a nugget in Packers history as well. So I've got for you in this episode. I appreciate you listening in. If uh, you enjoy this podcast and think somebody else would too, it'd mean a lot to me if you would share it. It's going to help the podcast grow and get more people involved in this conversation we're having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.